I have to tell you, I've done about two or three dozen interviews for this book. Mm -hmm. No one's ever asked me that. It's a great question. What is happening? I am Mal Foster and you are listening to the third episode of... No. (laughs) It's not. It's definitely not the third episode. You're listening to the latest episode of your third favourite above average. I mean, even that now, let's be honest. Saying that we're above average at this point when I can't even get my own introduction right, that is... uh, That's maybe stretching things a little bit. But I digress, it's not even a minute in, and I'm already doing it. But you are listening to the latest episode of your third favourite, above average, allegedly, podcast, Dimed Out, a show dedicated to exploring both the mysteries and the meanings of life. That's quite a big challenge to undertake when I can't even get the intro right. It's an audio kaleidoscope of experience, culture, and other stuff. And this week's other stuff... It's pretty serious. I'm going to kind of get myself back on track here. Yeah, what we're going to be talking about here is pretty serious, to say the least. It is a guest week. It's not just me, which I am sure you are kind of over the moon about. This week, I am joined by... Amy Archer. And yes, if you're looking for me, there's an E on the end of Amy. (laughs) (laughs) There are many, many Amy Archers without that E, so I had to put the E on. And to switch things up this week, and to also stop me waffling on any further, we're going to just jump straight into it. Amy's going to introduce who she is, a little bit about her background, and what she is here to talk about. So, yeah, in a refreshing change of pace, which I'm sure some of you will actually prefer, let's, uh, yeah, let's get into it. This is me talking to the wonderful Amy Archer, and uh, I'll see you guys on the other side. I'm a writer, I'm a teacher, I'm a mom, I do a little podcasting on the side, but my my labor of love that I spent the last three or four years working on is a book called If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings, and it came out in 2019, right before the pandemic hit, right at the end of 2019, and um, it's full of about 83 stories, firsthand accounts from people who've lived through or survived school shootings. So that's kind of what I'm here to talk about today and what I've been living the last couple of years. So yeah, you say you've been living with this for the last few years. How did this even start? Like what was the inception for the idea behind the book? So Mal, the idea came about um, on December 14th, 2012, the Sandy Hook shooting happened. Right. And I have twin daughters and they turned six two days before that. Wow. And it was transformational. To many, many parents in this country. Um, I wish it was more transformational to lawmakers, but it wasn't. (laughs) Um, But it changed me. Like, I I, I like to say that it kind of rearranged the parts inside of me as a Mm -hmm. mom. And I realized that I had to do something. So I became kind of a low-key advocate for some of these causes to draw attention to gun violence in schools. 
Um, I was raising, you know, twin daughters, so I wasn't able to be on the front lines. But when my daughters were old enough, I knew that I wanted to do something like this, a book full of narratives of some kind. I have a co-editor on the book. Her name is Lauren Kleiman. And we were talking about what we could do. And I kind of said to her, like, we need to do something around Sandy Hook. We need to do something around school shootings. Now, I am 43 years old, so I consider myself part of the Columbine generation. Right, yeah. I was in college when the Columbine shooting happened in 1999. And so I feel like my life, my adult life, has been oddly kind of bookmarked by school Mm, shootings. Right. And so we started the book with the question of what happened to those kids in Columbine? You Mm. know, how did they make it through the ones who survived? Like how, how did they get on? Right. Right. So that's kind of the research question that we went into the book with. So that was kind of like your your entry point and your your source of origin is kind of looking at it from that perspective. Cause that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, understandably uh, whenever Columbine comes up, uh, a lot of emphasis, sadly, is put on the perpetrators that did it. You know, oh, yeah. lot, they get yeah. a, a number of, of minutes of attention to that. But after that, it's it's the victims, understandably so. But a lot of people kind of gloss over the fact that there were countless other kids in yeah. that school that day. And how has that, as you say, affected them? And what kind of knock-on effect has that had? That's a really interesting sort of entry point. So you've got that in mind. And that's your, as we say, your genesis, where do you go from there? So how we got started was I was a member of Moms Demand Action. I don't know if you're familiar with that organization. I'm not, no. It was started by um, a self-described mother and housewife, Mm -hmm. Shannon Watts, who had a tremendous career in the business world and kind of knew marketing and knew what to do. And she was so affected by Sandy Hook that she started Moms Demand Action a day or two after from her kitchen on Facebook. And it grew to, it's one of the biggest advocacy groups for gun reform and survivor rights. So I was part of that group and we have a Facebook group that's private for each state. And I remember just putting in there, you know, a call like, Hey, do you guys know anyone who might be, cause there's a lot of people in that organization that work in survivor outreach or they work in different aspects. Yeah. So I, I just was like, you know, do we know anyone who might be willing to talk to me? Because I was also kind of afraid of, I'm, I'm so protective of these survivors because, you know, there is a voyeuristic aspect to this. Yeah in some ways. And we, we came across that when we were doing the book, like people who said they were in a school that they weren't really. So, yeah. So I was really concerned about how do I approach this with the ethos of, you know, who I am and knowing that my intentions are good and I'm not the press and right. I'm not, you know, right. You're, you're not a grief hawk that's looking to, to right. pick away at what is clearly a very raw, still open wound. Exactly. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's all right. (laughs) Animals are always welcome here. (laughs) So I just, um, you know, that's how it started. And they connected us with a few people. And one of the first people who I spoke to was a woman named Jamie Amo from Columbine, Mm -hmm. who has since become a very successful and uh, fierce advocate for this group. And she was really brave. And, you know, we talked for a long time and she told me her story. And 
I just said, you need to write this. You need to write this story because her story was about not really dealing with the trauma from the shooting, which many of those schools in the nineties did not. Right. Right. Yeah. So they just thought, you know, let's get back to back to business. So she, she kind of like many other survivors, it's a recurring theme in the Columbine chapter. She just pushed it down and went on with her life, but it pops up in different ways. And when she became a mother, she was in her kid's kindergarten or first grade classroom, and they had an active shooter drill. And she describes the moment that she like froze. And she realized at that moment, my kid, is, my kid quite possibly could go through something like I did. Mm-hmm. And she, she was called to action in that moment. So I thought that was a great story. Yeah. Like how, how are these people who are called to action, these survivors, how does that happen? Like, when does it, you know, now we see it like with Parkland, it happens immediately. Right. It's immediate. Right. Mm-hmm. But with Columbine, it wasn't. A lot of these people did not become advocates and involved in the movement until they were adults. I think a lot of people, and this is just me presuming as well, a lot of people don't realize how much of an effect it's had until a certain point later in life as well, especially around that era when it wasn't so prevalent um, and, it, and it was more of a unique incident and there wasn't as much aftercare. You know, there wasn't as much counseling, there wasn't as much help, there wasn't as much activism based from it. It was, as you say, okay, let's just pick up and and carry on and we'll just push through and persevere. Yeah. And and there were quite a few shootings in the years preceding Columbine, directly preceding Columbine, that I had never even heard of, Mm -hmm. which I, I was stunned. I mean, there are so many shootings that we could not include. Right. And I knew that would happen, but there were also so many shootings that we had never heard of. And I was really surprised, especially because like, I kind of had been living in this world a little bit, at least, you know, I'm politically active. I pay attention to the news. I consider myself well-informed and I had never heard of these shootings. And, you know, these survivors received zero support. I mean, outside of what their families could do for them and their friends, but no real support like they really needed. No. I want to talk to you just briefly about actually speaking to people for the first time, because you, you, you mentioned like not being a member of the press, not trying to sort of pick the bones of a juicy story for the sake of sort of an exploitative reason, but you're coming in with all good intentions and, you know, coming in from the perspective of a mother as well, and as you say, the, mm-hmm. the effects of Sandy Hook has kind of reconfigured a lot of your framework. How was that in terms of first approaching people to speak to? I can only imagine it was extremely daunting and you were presumably quite apprehensive. I have to tell you, I've done about two or three dozen interviews for this book. Mm-hmm. No one's ever asked me that. Huh. It's a great question because that was a huge hurdle to overcome. So it's a great question to ask thank and you. thank you for for raising it. It was really difficult and it was something that I was a nervous wreck about. I actually yeah. practiced talking to them with some of my friends, my close friends, because I was so nervous because the last thing, like I went into this thinking the last thing I want to do is cause these people an ounce of pain that they don't have already suffered. So I was, I was just so, you know, cognizant of that and aware of what they had been through. Um, The way that I approached them is kind of like heart first, 
you know, yeah. like, here's who I am. This is how Sandy Hook affected me. I'm a writer. I'm a mom. I'm a teacher. And I believe in the power of personal narratives. And for each survivor, I told them about my dream for this book. And my dream for the book was that my grandchildren will someday read this book with the historical distance mm. and perspective that I, as a sixth grader, read The Diary of Anne Frank. Right. You know, that was something that brought the Holocaust to our doorsteps as children mm -hmm. because we were reading a firsthand narrative from another child. But it was something that you were like, oh my God, I can't believe that ever really happened. And that's how I wanted people, I want future generations to read this and say, I can't believe that happened because it's not happening now. Right, you want them to be in a, in a period where there isn't that sense of relatability that sadly we have now. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I think once I started framing it that way, that I think, I hope that people saw I was genuine and, and agreed with that vision of the book. And, and we all kind of worked from there. Was it quite a, an open response from a lot of people? Or did you find that was something that kind of came over time, the more that you spoke to them? Or I suppose maybe it varied from person to person. It varied from person to person. The way that Lauren, my co-editor, and I split the stories up is she worked on all the colleges mm -hmm. and I worked on all the primary and secondary schools. So I did Sandy Hook, I did Columbine. And of, so of course I formed a tighter bond with those communities. Yeah. But I have been traveling a little bit and I've gone to various locations and survivors have come out to the readings oh, wow. when I've been doing them. And um, it's it's been amazing. And there are people that I didn't necessarily work with on my chapter, but of course I was well aware of their story because yeah. I edited the whole book with Lauren. So it was really neat. And I feel like this book just brings together people that you might not expect to come together. So that was really a cool. Are, are you finding that, that there is bringing a sense of connectivity? Like people are feeling more comfortable maybe to the people that you obviously haven't spoken to, as you say, they're coming out to reasons. That's an amazing thing. That's a powerful thing to see. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really powerful. It's reaffirming my work here. Yeah. And when I say my work, I mean the work of putting this together. The survivors are the ones who did the work, yeah. right? Like they sure. told the stories. Right. It was my job, I feel like, and Lauren's job to talk to them to figure out what that story was. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were kind of the guiding force, but they were the ones who bravely just opened up on the page and put it out there so that was really really cool yeah and that is a lot to sort of open up to you know uh yeah it, there's there's a, there's a lot that i i can again thankfully having not been in that position i can only yeah. you know uh assume for it for better or worse but there's must be an awful lot to unpack to yourself and then to, to share it with other people as well yes and one of the things we wanted to be cautious of was kind of every story sounding the same from each right. group, right? So, mm -hmm. and we did run into some of that, but we were able to really talk to the survivors. And I'm specifically thinking about 
those schools I mentioned, Thurston, Heath High School, that happened right before Columbine, where the survivors that I was working with were all the student perspective and they were all the same age and kind of a similar perspective. Yeah. So we really worked to personalize the stories in that it's not just the story of the day of the shooting. It's Mm -hmm. the aftermath. It's what happened after bad marriages, substance abuse, advocacy, you know, all those different routes that people took. So we, it was really like a cultivation of these stories. And when we put the stories together, we put them in reverse chronology. So while we were working on the book, two shootings happened. We started yeah. we started a month after Parkland happened. And Great Mills High School happened in March of that year. And then Santa Fe High School happened in May of that year. So Santa Fe High School is the first chapter in the book. Yeah. And that was very raw. And what I wanted, my it's funny because... My therapist actually came up with this idea. (laughs) I was telling her in a session the one day that when you lay the stories out from the the closest shooting to the furthest, you could almost see the the form that the trauma takes through a lifetime. And she was like, that's a really good idea. You should order the book that way (laughs) instead of putting, because Austin, Texas is always the first. So that would have been the first. In our book, it's the last. So that's kind of how we did it. Yeah, that is a really interesting way of putting it together. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, you do you do get, like, the full arc of, as you say, like, the, the trauma. And, and I think the fact that you're covering it from different angles and you're looking at how it's affected not just parents, but students mm-hmm. and family Teachers members. And, yeah, and you're just seeing how many fractures and, and sort of breaks there are and, and just how widespread yeah. the effect actually is. You know, yeah, I think that's it's it's an amazing thing to show just how vast and unfortunately how vast the spectrum is from these things. Absolutely. When we did Santa Fe, I worked with a mother, Rhonda Hart. Her daughter was killed, Kimberly. Yeah, I was going to bring this up. Yeah, this is fascinating how you've put this together. Yeah. So she could not write. She just couldn't. I mean, it had just happened. So I said to her, with your permission, can I go through your Instagram? Because she was very vocal on on Instagram or on Twitter. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. She was very vocal on Twitter and she was just kind of hurting out loud, right? Like hurting out loud. So I said to her, do you mind if I do sort of a graphic story for you? And I go through and I pull tweets that tell the story of Kimberly's death and your reaction to it. She said, no, that's fine. So I did it. And I spent a good solid two weeks just immersed in this woman's Twitter line, which she was tweeting a lot because she was hurting. And that was her outlet, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I built that Twitter story and I sent it to her and she just loved it. And that was so, that meant so much to me, you know, that I, I just built this story that I felt captured what had happened and that she was really happy with it. So, yeah, it's it's a really unique way of getting into a story without kind of prodding into something that is, as you say, so raw. Yeah. Because that is not somebody in that moment. That is not somebody who is is willing already and understandably uh, wanting to kind of talk about that because they're processing it. But you get to see the various stages of of process through 
reading through the timeline and you get to see uh, such a myriad of emotions yeah you know disbelief anger Mm -hmm. um joy as well weirdly enough and looking back at, at previous photos and yeah little details that go along and that seems to be something because I've read the first two chapters of the book mm-hmm. and little details is something that I've wrote in my notes as being like a real emphasis and a real key to a lot of stories is yeah. it's not so much the big headline pieces of information. It's yeah. the little details. It's the tiny things. And with the case of Rhonda and her story kind of going through that, it's it's little details from as I say, past memories, mm-hmm. things about her daughter, yep. um, Kimberly. And the, the thing that I've, I've put here in my notes that's really struck me from the first two chapters and the first chapter in particular is the idea of knowing and not knowing. So there's a point in Rhonda's story through her timeline where she finds out specific details about how many times Kimberly was shot and yeah. where and how. And it's it's those specific details which just seem to break her. That seems to be the point where it just really, really sort of hits home. Yeah. And then the counterbalance to that, the not knowing aspect, is to kind of go to the intro of the book with uh, Fred Guttenberg, mm-hmm. where he says, "And this got me really hard." <laughs> yeah, I know. Did I tell Did I tell my kids I love them as they ran out the door? Did I stop to tell Jamie I loved it? It's little things like that. It's it's the things, the ethereal parts. Yeah. that kind of just float away, that have no solid definition, yeah. which seem to be the most haunting. I agree with you 100%. We we worked with the gentleman who, I'm not going to give his name because he ended up mm-hmm. not writing for us because his family just didn't feel that they wanted okay. him to. A lot of these families, they're very hesitant because yeah. you know people people come after them, which is a whole other thing I'll talk about. But wow. um, he wrote about his daughter and her her, tracking her iPhone. And Mm -hmm. when the shooting occurred and then he tracked her iPhone, he realized that it was them taking her to the morgue. And that was like, cause I can't tell you as a mother, my daughters are 14 now, how many times I'm using track my iPhone on them all the time. Yeah. To think of that. I I don't have kids, but just to think of somebody that I cared about to kind of put even, wow. And again, it's the little details like that, which really flesh. I mean, unless you've been, it's like so many things, unless you've been in those shoes, unless you've experienced that, which hopefully, God forbid, anybody listening to this never has that identifiable sense of relatability. But unless you've been in that, you can't really truly know. But it's little details like that, which bring you closer to that person and and those little those little details Mal like are the things that haunt me you know what I mean like you can't I remember I worked um with Sandy Hook and I worked with Danielle Barden's family Natalie Barden actually wrote for us the afterward and she was Mm -hmm. you know she was a young kid when her brother was killed she shared with me and her family shared with me a lot of artifacts because we also have if you go to our website, if I don't make it, I love you.com, there's a digital archive of artifacts that the survivors have shared with us. Wow. So um, she shared with me a letter that Daniel's kindergarten teacher, so he was in first grade when he was murdered, Daniel's kindergarten teacher had written to the parents about uh-huh. how sorry she was and what a beautiful child he was. To this day, like I get choked up thinking yeah. about it. 
I remember that wrecked me for weeks. Like I couldn't even, I went into my therapist's office. I sat down and I just started sobbing. Like I couldn't even get my head around that. Like it's those little things. You're right. Like the, the little, like waiting for the red receipt on the text and never getting it. Like those little things just, that's, that's what, when I run into somebody who tells me a child has more of a chance of dying in an airplane than in a school shooting, that's the details I want to shove into their brain. You know, those are the things I want to push into them and say, live with this for a while, because Mm -hmm. that's what they need to hear. When you encounter that, it really does make you scratch your head and think like, how can you have such a lack of just general empathy? You know, when (laughs) it's mind boggling and it's, it's, and, and having covered so much of this and having lived with this, I mean, I'm obviously preaching to the choir here, but it just, it must just be a mix of just sheer disbelief and just anger and sadness as well that somebody is of that ilk that they just can't connect to this very basic human thing of how can you say that right in this regard i i honestly believe i have always been pretty politically active and Mm. i've always you know when i was growing up in the 80s i'm 43 so when i was growing up in the 80s my dad worked for a defense contractor And we were a Reagan household, true and through. Like it was Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. But I grew up and eventually became a Democrat. But I feel like I understood Republicans because I had been amongst them for a very long time. When I saw President Obama crying in the Rose Garden when they did not pass a simple background check bill from Manchin to me after Sandy Hook, that was the day like... My it it sounds weird, but that was the day like my political heart broke. I was like, this mm-hmm. country, it's just not what I thought it was. You know, like I followed politics my whole life. I loved politics, and I loved, you know, I'm I'm such a nerd about like presidential history and stuff like that. I just something broke that day. I was like, this is this is a broken country, mm-hmm. and I'll never forget him coming on and just he was crying tears of anger is what he was doing. And because the day Sandy Hook happened, I remember him crying in during his press briefing. Yeah. And that was comforting at the time. But this day, it was Manchin, the Manchin-Toomey bill and it failed. And he was just, he was stunned. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think he wrote about that in his memoir that that was like the hardest day of his presidency. Either Sandy Hook the day or or that day, one yeah. of them. Yeah. But I, I just remember thinking like, you know, I grew up in a country where if you could save the life of one kid, you did it. Like that was it. We we sacrificed because we we cared about our children. Like mm-hmm. what is happening? That we would rather design a school with curved hallways so kids can't get hit by a school shooter. Is that something that that's is, something that's happening. That's an actual thing. That's happening. Yeah. Wow. So, and I suppose my perspective is is kind of interesting because this is somewhat new to me. I've lived here for two and a half years, obviously, you know, being attuned to to what's happening in the world, even from the other side of the Atlantic, it was kind of evident that there was a real problem and there's been a real problem for a long time. But it's not until actually uh, living here and being here for over two and a half years and seeing 
week after week after week after week after week, mass shooting, mass shooting, yeah. mass shooting. Yeah. And seeing that replay over and over and over again, that I've realized just how much of a problem it is. Yeah. So where where did you grow up? I grew up in the north of England. So I think, you know, I, I was talking to somebody else about this, and I know it's it's anecdotal, but when I watch like a good BBC murder mystery, which right. there are many, right? <laughs> watching a good, yeah. like a, you know, broad church, right? right? Yeah. As an American, I am stunned by the lack of guns in those shows. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, not everybody's pulling guns on each other? No. Nobody's like flipping out and shooting the place up. Like what is happening? And it's then times like that, that you realize like, and Shannon Watts on the cover of our book calls this a uniquely American phenomenon. Yeah. And it's times like that, that you realize it really is. Yeah. It really is. It, it genuinely, genuinely really is. And and this is not to say that we don't have guns in England because we do. Uh, usually, sure, usually, usually they are gathered from a legal means. To be honest, yep. and um, you have them in moderation and when do. appropriate. We yep. do, and for the most part, it's it's down to farmers who need specific licenses, and for hunting yep. parties who need specific yep. licenses. But we had yep. one incident in the early to mid nineties. I can't remember the date exactly, or the year rather, uh, called Dunblane, which happened in which a, a soul shooter, an adult, walked into a school. And, and killed children since then it was a real firm lockdown yeah on on gun control and well even even australia look at the response there mm-hmm. i mean other countries respond appropriately to this what do you think we it, haven't what do you think is the reason why there hasn't been a response i have ideas <laughs> um, i mean <laughs> How foul would you like my language to oh, get? Hey, no, you can drop kidding. as many F bombs as you kidding. want. <laughs> um I, I don't know. I think we have in this country an entire network that just pumps out misinformation to the masses. Yeah. That's become Every day. really evident over the last uh, yes. twelve to eighteen months. Yes. So I think a lot of this happened because we had the assault weapons ban and everything under Clinton. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of this happened under Obama. I think that you had an entire news network telling the American people that Obama was going to take your guns. Right. And that seems to be the first line of defense in terms yes. of hysteria for, for those that are going to respond yes. to it. Now, I will tell you, if I were a hunter... And my husband's a hunter, mm-hmm. and he has hunting rifles in our house, appropriate hunting rifles. My in-laws, you know, we live kind of in the middle of nowhere. They have a pistol and they have a, a shotgun, mm-hmm. right? Lic- everything's licensed, you know, whatever. If if they truly believed, like, if, like even if Donald Trump said, I'm going to take every gun away from you in this country, I could see that being a problem. Yeah, yeah. I get it. That's not what was happening, but nobody was reporting what was happening. No. And I think, you know, you you can go back to when we passed the assault weapons ban and Fox News was not Fox News. Mm. And that is the problem. That is the problem in this country is we have created and it got worse in the last four years. We've created this aura of misinformation that nobody knows who to trust mm-hmm. and nobody knows what's right. And I mean, even though I'm a Democrat, sometimes I turn on 
you know, MSNBC. And I'm just like, guys, do we have to have the, like, I hate Trump hour right? every yeah. single yeah. hour? Like, yeah. you know, th- they're kind of guilty of the bias too. Oh, absolutely. But at least it's not misinformation. Right. Like the, the blatant just misinformation that Obama was going to come and get your guns was just on repeat. And so I think there was a little hidden nugget of of racism there yeah, and a lot sure. of misinformation. Oh, for sure. It's definitely mm-hmm. a very potent combination of both of those things. And yeah. and the idea that, uh, you know, moderation doesn't sell. Moderation doesn't get viewers. Correct. Moderation doesn't buy yeah. ad revenue. What does is hysteria. What does is yeah. having an agenda and yes. pushing that agenda to the people that you know for sure are mm-hmm. going to buy it and come back each and every night, you know. Yeah. Hence why Tucker Carlson has a show. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and we have, let's not discount the power of the NRA either. No, exactly. Yeah. And they have had a re- big hand in, in this this problem, this yep. ongoing problem. And it's the financial yep. backing. It's the investments yes. that they've given to, to, to people that are going to yeah. protect their interests and who yeah. are more than happy to, to take X amount of cash for mutual support. I think the NRA... And, you know, I give I give Shannon Watts and Moms Demand Action a lot of a lot of credit here. I think the NRA has been incredibly weakened. Yes, I think. Yeah. But, you know, they're still not gone. No, they're still not gone. And, you know, fear and paranoia is a lot like that's how they build their base. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of it out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not in short supply. No. But but yeah, it definitely has been weakened. And and hopefully the, the further we move forward, the more that we get these stories out, the more that we have conversations, yeah. the more that people are willing to listen to conversations that normally wouldn't, I think is definitely something that can help sort of build a bridge and move things forward. Um, it's, it's finding a way to sort of break through the, the the fortified barricade of these echo chambers that a lot of people find themselves in. Because a lot of yeah. these people that say these, these awful things like, oh, you're more statistically likely to die in a plane crash if they actually were to open themselves up to these conversations if they were willing to kind of put aside the feedback yeah. loop of what they've been told day after day after day and actually sit with the details and look at it from a, a, a specific zoomed in perspective from real yeah. people, it may begin to take effect or it may begin to push them towards thinking a little differently. And if you can push people to thinking a little differently about something that they've completely shut off, then yeah. you can engage in more discourse and conversation and you can move things forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I find that on the on the rare occasion that, you know, I've sat down face to face and talked to somebody about something like this, they do see it in a different light. Mm-hmm. When you assure them, like, it's not about rewriting the Second Amendment. Right. You know, it's not about that. No. It, it's about... Are you a criminal? You shouldn't have a gun. Do you have, you know, are you a domestic abuser? You shouldn't have a gun. Mm-hmm. Simple things like this. And you know who did this really well was the March for Our Lives kids, the Parkland yeah. kids. Yeah. They went around the country and they sat down. I specifically remember them spending a lot of time in Texas around the Beto campaign. And they were sitting down, like they would send these pictures out of them sitting down with you know, people who open carry and love their guns and they, they would sit down with them in a room. And by the time they left, like they were, they were meeting somewhere. Right. You know what I mean? And that's, that's how we have to have conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's finding a, a common ground. It's finding a place of specific uh, interest. It's finding a, a latch to bring people 
closer towards the middle ground. It's yeah. just it's just getting there. It's pretty difficult sometimes. Yeah, and and you know it's interesting because if you follow the last election that we had, and I followed it very closely. You know, these debates that we have aren't really debates, are they? No. Like the, no, no, no. the moderator asks a question, no one else is allowed to say anything. Right. The person answers and then they move on. That's not a debate. No. And one thing I have to give Bernie Sanders credit for is he had real debates with people. Mm-hmm. Like he got on a stage with Ted Cruz and had a debate, like a conversation. Yeah. And even though we were all like, oh, Ted Cruz, <laughs> it was interesting to watch. And and they were able to talk to each other. And it's promoting the idea of having discourse from both sides of the yeah. aisle. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. From just from what we've been saying, in terms of, of moving forward towards some kind of reform, which we do desperately need. Look, I, you know, there are going to be people that say, no, we don't. Of course, we've mm-hmm, talked about mm-hmm, some of those mm-hmm. examples. Um, yep. And, you know, they're entitled to their opinion, but in this case, it's very, very wrong. Uh, <laughs> I don't mind saying yes, that. Um, but how do we how do we get there? How do we get to a point of reform? How do we get to a point of change? Because it does seem increasingly difficult in some regards. Because obviously, at the minute, you're seeing a big seismic shift in terms of the GOP, and you're yep. seeing a lot of that hysteria that we said, and a lot of that misinformation is still very potent. And in, in the absence of he who shall not be named, it seems like there's more um, concentrated efforts to stoke culture wars and to kind of really oh, yeah. twist the knife into certain points yep. of, of political division. So on that mm-hmm. front, it's difficult. And recently over here, um, we've we've had uh, was it House Bill 1927, which is, you know, proposing uh, people are allowed to uh, open carry without a license, without training with so you know unbelievable yeah it is absolutely unbelievable and as somebody that doesn't come from this culture i was already pretty kind of scared about things to begin with that is just adding an extra layer of it on top so in that regard we are kind of moving away from the solution but in terms of conversations in terms of especially regarding parkland a lot of young people saying this shit is done we've had enough no more of this you're seeing more of that. You're yeah. seeing a lot more young people becoming politically active in general, but specifically yep. when it comes to things like this. So on that hand, we're kind of moving closer to a solution. Yeah, I think so. So a couple things there. Okay. Let's first, let's take yeah, this open carry thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. First, let's take this open carry thing to its logical conclusion, right? right? So anyone can open carry. Mm-hmm. So does that mean if I'm in a target, no pun intended, and somebody comes in, can I just shoot them because I think they're a bad guy with the gun? Like, am I now able to murder people? Right. I don't know. I mean, it worked with Trayvon Martin, right? Worked with that case. You're mm-hmm. just able to shoot somebody and say you felt threatened and you get away with it. Yeah. So is it going to turn into the Wild West in our retail stores and in our public spaces? Or is everybody just going to be armed? I don't know. And as a mother, that's terrifying yeah. to me. The second thing is, Two things. I think that we, the younger people are starting to vote Mm -hmm. and they are coming out in droves and it's going to be a generational shift. Yeah, They are suffering. I I hate to say our, because I really don't think this is on the Gen Xers. I think it's more on the boomers, but Mm -hmm. they're they're suffering our collective adult universe. Right. Our mistakes and our inaction, right? They're suffering. So they are going to come back. They're going to vote in droves. The third thing is 
I think how this is solved is the way that Obamacare was solved. So everybody hated Obamacare. Nobody wanted the Affordable Care Act. People got it. And now they don't want it taken away Mm -hmm. because they realized, hey, this is a pretty good thing. So I think we need to, to vote in the right people who will change the laws. And once people see that the Second Amendment hasn't been stripped away, nobody's knocking on my door taking these guns. Mm-hmm. I think then that might finally get through. I I don't know. I don't know. But on a on a smaller local level, when I when I read from this book, I tell every group that I read, what you can do today is share one of these stories with somebody else. Yeah. That's what you can do. Absolutely. I can't say it more simpler than that. Because hearing these stories should change things mm-hmm. in people's minds. Yeah. I think if I, they have a heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a big sort of prerequisite. Yeah. yeah. And and hopefully, yeah. hopefully they do. And I, this is the thing. Yeah. Most people do. It's just a case Most people do. It is yes. it is just a case of uh, allowing, as we said, allowing yourself to kind of even just take a peek at something that you've completely yeah. shut off. You know, yeah. something that you've completely closed off. Take a look at something that is very real, very human. Yes. And yeah. and has been very much experienced in in various degrees, which yeah. you see a lot of in in the book itself. I want to kind of get back onto to the book for just a moment or two. One of my questions that I put here is, what have you actually learned from compiling the book? I mean, I, I imagine there is a lot, but what are some of the takeaways that come to mind from compiling the book? There's a lot. Yeah. Um, I I think one of the things that I took away from it is it was way worse than I imagined. Mm. Everything that has been happening was way worse than anyone imagines. And it's also shifted my focus to how do we get these survivors the resources and support they need? So I have deliberately shifted my advocacy from gun reform, which there are way better, more qualified, smarter people doing that and fighting that fight to how do we get bills up in front of state ho- state houses that provide counseling, healthcare, you know, rehabilitation services, whatever these survivors need, they need. Mm-hmm. And we need to get that. And we've gotten better with that. Yeah. Like the responses to, because unfortunately, you know, we have to deal with it. It's not going to, had to adapt to it. Yeah. Yeah. So the responses to Parkland and Santa Fe, like they've been better. But they're still not adequate. They are not adequate. Um, The Washington Post, they have a database on school shootings, and they estimate that 248,000 students since Columbine have experienced a school shooting in their school. 248,000 students. That's a lot of people. Yeah. That's a lot of trauma. That is, and that's a lot of young lives that are still yes. in in their formative stages. Yes. you know that are still dealing with. I mean, just the pains of being a teenager, which is hard enough yeah. as it is, or being a child, and then to yeah. have that, and then to adapt to that. And as we said yeah. before, if there isn't the the appropriate aftercare, if there isn't the appropriate resources, that's something that might not be dealt with or even manifest until later in life, but may yes. take a toll leading up to that point beneath the surface. Yeah. 100%. I'll give you one of the the best examples, the most obvious examples of of this transitive trauma, if you will, this trauma that is yeah. vicariously felt through all of us is um Ted Hockhalter Hockhalter, sorry, wrote for our book and he was in Columbine and his daughter was shot and she was paralyzed from the neck down. And his wife a year after the shooting went into a public space 
a um, pawn shop, bought a gun, and committed suicide right there in front of everybody in that pawn shop. So now you have a group of people who witnessed this suicide, who are traumatized, which she was reacting to her trauma from the school. Like, it just never stops. It keeps radiating out. It's like a Chernobyl in every American city, right? It just radiates out and nobody is safe. Yeah, the and, ripple effect, and that's that's an yeah. that's a really fantastic thing to to bring to attention. Yeah, is the, is the ripple effect doesn't just affect those within the immediate sort of no. circumference of the event. No, you know, think about our first responders. Yeah, you know, we. we I talk- just I just I just spoke to an EMT who yeah. who has been suffering with PTSD for a long, long time there because of the things that he's seen and the things that became routine. Yeah. You know, yeah, we also had that's why we invited doctors to -hmm. write for our book. Doctors who, you know, had to one gentleman, Sterling Herring, he wrote about treating students from Marshall High School and then going home to his newborn son every night and struggling with, yeah, do I put my kid in school? Do I weigh school shooting safety against that? Like, it's just it's an impossible situation. And we worked with. We spoke to an EMT in the West Nickel Mine shooting. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That was in Pennsylvania. And it was near me and it was in the Amish area of our state. And a gentleman went into a one-room schoolhouse and and murdered a bunch of young girls. But he held them hostage first. It was was really bad. Yeah. And um, we had an EMT that we spoke to. He ended up not being able to write for the book because he just broke down. Like he broke down tears, even talking to us. And this man did two tours in Iraq Yeah, and came back. And this is what broke him. Like how much trauma can one person take? It's unbelievable to me. And, and, you know, the lawmakers and community leaders, they're just turning a blind eye. It's like so weird. I mean, if we had 248,000 soldiers returning home from a terrible, terrible war, you know what I mean? We would do something for them. We would, our, our veterans are not taken care of well enough in this country. Don't get me started on that. But, you know, at least they're a population that America seems to give a shit about. And I feel like yeah. they don't give a shit about this other population that is suffering this trauma on a daily basis. I think that boils down to a, a real root problem, though, that, that stems around division. And, and the idea that, uh, you know, there are certain people with certain mindsets that couldn't care less about other people that yeah. aren't like them, that aren't in their position. Yeah, you're right. Um, and I mean, that is an, an entirely episode yes. uh, worth of content on its own, which I'm not going to get into. Look for our, our upcoming episode, People Who Don't Care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a 10 part series. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just I was on about um, things that you've learned mm-hmm. from the book and things that have stuck out from you. Is there anything else? That, that jumps to mind. Yeah. You know, while I learned that it was way worse than I thought, I also was just in awe of these people and how strong they are. And I mean, I did not know this, but after Sandy Hook happened, you know, a bus load of Columbine survivors went to Sandy Hook wow. to support them. And then after Parkland happened, they all came down to Parkland. Huh. And there's like this almost secret network yeah. of survivors that go around and support each other. And uh, I think Fred Gutenberg calls it the club no one wants to belong to, right? Right. Yeah. But um, it's you know it's it's heartwarming to see that to see somebody who's 
dealing with their own grief, being able to extend their heart to somebody else in that time. Absolutely. So I was really in awe of these people. That is an amazing thing to come from all of this. And I think that's a good way to kind of sort of tie things off a little bit is that, yeah, the book does go into detail, specific, very little human resonating, haunting details about these things that have happened and the, the sort of spider web of trauma that has has been spread out from these events but it also seems very much like there are people finding real strength and compassion and healing and growth which comes from that from other people from this shared experience this awful shared experience that they've had that only they and other people that have been in as you as you say at the club no one wants to belong to that they've experienced and finding a great sense of solace from all of this. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And the the thing I always kind of end on is, you know, I asked myself what happened to those kids from Columbine. Well, you know what? They were all right. Yeah. And they're fighting for our kids. Yeah. You know, they're fighting for their kids now and our kids to be safe mm-hmm. and to be better. And they're all right. No thanks to their country. Right. <laughs> but they're all right. Uh-huh. They made it through, you know, and that's, that's a testament to them and their strength. Absolutely. And it's a thing to hold on to as well, that um, yeah. it's always going to have an adverse lifetime effect on anyone that goes through this. But, you know, with with support and strength and compassion and discussion, you know, people can make it through these things. Yeah, Absolutely. gang so there you go that was my chat with the wonderful amy archer it was an absolute pleasure to sit down and just talk with her in general just a great conversation and a great conversationalist but to really kind of get into this project in particular i'm really grateful that she had the time to spare to talk to me about this and i'm really grateful for the fact she's made this because i feel like this is something that we need it's an absolute tragedy that there is so much material that can make a book in the first place regarding this subject. It's a tragedy that there are so many real-life encounters that can make this thing a reality. But considering it is in the history books, as it were, I think that a, a book like If I Don't Make It, I Love You is needed, is necessary, because there is a real ongoing problem. There is a real epidemic in terms of gun culture and gun violence in this country. And as much as some people may want to stick their heads in the sand and pretend that there isn't, There is, and the statistics do not lie, and neither do these stories. These are real human stories of experience, of trauma, of grief, of of just a forever changed reality. And I, you know, it's it's just amazing that it's out there, and that it can hopefully kickstart conversations where conversations aren't being had, and it can open eyes that have been purposely closed for the longest time. Yeah, I am about halfway through the book now. At the time of doing the interview, I think I said I had done the first two chapters. I'm at about the halfway point. I'm having to work my way through it in chunks because it is heavy. It is dense. It hits really hard at points. But as we said towards the back end of our chat, there is also a sense of real strength and connectivity. And there's a weird, uplifting attitude in there as well, you know a sense of real determination and perseverance. 
and, you know, personally speaking, the level of influence and inspiration that has is, is just immeasurable. If you're interested in reading the book, if you're interested in getting a copy, which I highly, highly recommend you do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put links to it in the show notes for this episode. If you go to our website, dimetyphonout.com, or you look in the show notes on the device that you're listening to this on, you'll be able to see links to where you can purchase the book online. You'll also see a link to Amy's website and a link to her podcast, because she is also in the podcast arena. She does a podcast with her sister about 90s movies and Little House on the Prairie. So if you're a fan of either, or perhaps even both of those things, and that has piqued your interest, yeah, definitely go check that out as well. As I said, links to all of that can be found in the show notes for this episode. And whilst you're in there, whilst you're having a rummage around in the show notes, you'll also be able to see some links that relate to Dimed Out. In particular, our Patreon account. So if you recently found the show, and for whatever reason, and I cannot even begin to fathom what that reason may be, but if for whatever reason you just need more Dimed Out content in your life, then don't worry, I've got you covered. If you check out our Patreon account, we've got one single tier, and you can take a look at that and the bonus goodies that are available, mainly bonus episodes, the odd live stream, access to our Discord channel, and a few other things as well. So yeah, if you are interested, you want to get some extra content, you want to support the show, that is a very viable option. One of the best ways you can support the show without spending anything other than just a few moments of your time is to simply subscribe. If you haven't done so already, then you can just find us presumably wherever you found this episode and just gently boop that subscription button. Not only does it help us out with the mystical, mythical internet magic stuff, but it also gives you every episode from the show moving forward. And you don't even have to do a thing, which is nice. Speaking of nice, something else that helps us tremendously is ratings and reviews. Ratings more so, because I know that takes less time. But if you are inclined to leave a nice review, then what we're doing this season is we are encouraging haiku reviews. Nice reviews only in the traditional haiku format. Three lines, seven syllables, five syllables, seven syllables. If you want to do that. Again, completely optional. But it would be nice. And last, but certainly, most definitely not least, if you want to leave some feedback in a more direct fashion, then you can do so. You can get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram, or you can find me at I am Mal Foster. You can leave me your feedback on particular episodes, topics that we've covered. You can even leave suggestions for things you would like to hear the show cover moving forward into the future. Or you can just stop by and say hi. Or, as I've said before, uh, and I'm not above doing it again, I will solicit for cute pet pictures. If you've got an adorable pet and you want to show it off, then by all means, send them over. Showboat that fur baby of yours. Or if it's got, I want to. I don't want to say scales. I'm not into lizards. I'm just saying that now. You might love your, your big iguana. You might just absolutely adore your big Komodo dragon. You might snuggle with it and it may bring you a good sense of comfort and well-being. And if that's the case, great. All power to you. Good for you guys but I'm not a fan of reptiles. So, yeah. <laughs> if if you want to send me a reptile pic, actually, I shouldn't tell people that because now I'm just going to probably get just like an absolute just pile of reptile pictures. And on that note, on that totally unrelated to anything kind of note, 
that's pretty much it for this week. Next week's episode is going to be a bit of a surprise. You just got to tune in next week to find out what we're talking about. Yeah, I'm doing that to you. How about that? I mean, I'm sure you'll manage to get through your week just just fine. But yeah, you just have to tune in next week to see what we're going to be talking about. But as for this week, we are pretty much done. In fact, no, we are actually done. As always, thank you for listening. Look after yourselves, look after each other. And until next time, don't you dare send me any bloody reptile pictures. I mean it. I just, I just don't like them. Thank you.